if you will, to Matthew chapter 26. Matthew 26. A very short passage today, but it's a whole new section. I'll talk about in just a second. It seems like timing is everything. You've probably heard that. Timing is everything. It's true if you're uh, playing sports. It's true if you're making investments with money. It's true if you're telling a joke. Timing is everything. Well, that little phrase also helps us to understand what's going on in our text this morning. As we begin Matthew 26, we turn from Jesus' teaching on things to come to the beginning of the passion of Jesus. In chapter 26 and 27, these next two chapters, we will go through the Last Supper, through Jesus' prayer at Gethsemane, his arrest, his trial before the Jewish Sanhedrin, his trial before Pilate, his suffering, his crucifixion, his death, and his burial. And now to the end of chapter 27, the Passion Jesus. Our little text this morning, it's only five verses, but it sets the stage for this most important event in history, that is the death of the Lord Jesus Christ on the cross for us. Let me read it, and then we'll talk about it. Matthew 26, verse 1. When Jesus had finished saying all these things, he said to his disciples, As you know, the Passover is two days away, and the Son of Man will be handed over to be crucified. Then the chief priests and the elders of the people assembled in the palace of the high priest, whose name was Caiaphas, and they, plan, they plotted to arrest Jesus in some sly way and kill him. But not during the feast, they said, or there might be a riot among the people. There are two profound truths in this little passage, which hardly seems like a passage big enough to preach, but there are two pro pro uh, profound truths. And the first is this. Jesus gave his life to set us free. Jesus gave his life to set us free. I, I, I'm sure all of you at some time have been trapped, kind of trapped, manipulated, uh, caught uh, to do something. Maybe it's a good thing but not necessarily something you wanted to do. For example, you express some interest in a worthy cause, and the next thing you know, you're the fundraising chairman for that. Or you, you, you're interested in your kid's education, next thing you know, you're an officer in the parent association. It's not that you're unwilling, you understand. It's just that it's frustrating to be trapped into something that you didn't intend to do. Is that what happened to Jesus? Is that how Jesus found himself dying on the cross? No. Right up front, at the beginning of the whole passion of Christ, Jesus makes it clear that he willingly gave his life for us to set us free. We see his willingness in the fact that he predicted his crucifixion. You know, when I was in seminary, we had some Ugandan students. That's when Idi Amin was killing people in Uganda. These guys had been pastors in Uganda. But when Amin and his troops made it clear that they were searching for them to kill them, they, like so many other Christians, fled the country. And they ended up in getting some seminary training while they were in the States. They fled rather than be killed. You'd do the same thing. I would do the same thing. If we knew somebody intended to kill us, we would run. We wouldn't show up, would we? Jesus showed up. Right on schedule, Jesus showed up. Remember, he didn't normally live in Jerusalem. He lived up in Galilee. That's his, up in the sticks in the north 
He could easily have gone back home. They didn't like to go up there. He could have hid out there forever. But instead, he came to Jerusalem intentionally. He could, he could easily have not shown up. He came, not only uh, uh, came, but he came saying that he was going to die there. Four times in the Gospel of Matthew, Jesus says, you're going to Jerusalem to die. And now he's telling his disciples again in very explicit detail, I will be crucified in two days. That's pretty Mark, why didn't he run away? He saw it coming. Why did he sneak out of town under the cover of darkness and go away? Because for this he came into the world to willingly give himself for our deliverance. Jesus himself said that in John 10. He says, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for his sheep. No one takes it from me. I lay it down of my own accord. I have the authority to lay it down and to take it up again. Jesus gave his life to set us free. Make no mistake, Jesus was not dragged, kept kicking and screaming to the cross. As Isaiah had prophesied, he was led like a lamb to the slaughter. As a sheep before her shears is silent, he did not open his mouth because this was God's plan. This was Jesus' plan with the Father from the beginning that he would willingly give himself up for our salvation. But then in verse 2, Jesus also made clear that his suffering was not just voluntary, but it was specifically planned to deliver us to set us free. We see that in the way he identified his death with the Passover. Passover was the defining incident in the, in the life of Old Testament Israel. They had been slaves in Egypt for centuries. But God remembered his covenant promises made to Abraham, and he delivered them from slavery. He did it by bringing judgment on Egypt. Remember the the, the, the death of the firstborn, that when the, the, the angel of death comes, the firstborn of every family will die. But God provided a, a substitute for his people, the Passover lamb. When they took the Passover lamb and, and the Passover lamb was slain, they took the blood and they put it over the doorpost of the house. And in, those inside were spared. The, the death angel passed over them. As he as came to, to uh, judge the, the Egyptians. And that night, the Egyptian, the firstborn of the Egyptians died, but God delivered his people, and in mass, they left Egypt. Throughout the Old Testament, that exodus was the prototype of God's deliverance, of God's salvation that was yet to come. For you see, the slavery and the deliverance of Egypt pointed to something bigger than itself. For the real slavery that holds people captive is much worse than just the institution of slavery, which is terrible. People are slaves to sin, not just slaves, but everybody is a slave to sin, and it's resulting death. We live under the tyranny of the evil, and that's a greater problem than just being somebody's slave. And the judgment that God promises is also greater. More than just a bunch of plagues like they had in Egypt that 
uh, ending up with the death of their firstborn. That's a terrible judgment. But Jesus had spoken of real judgment at the end of the last chapter, 25, when he says they will go away into eternal punishment. That's more than just plagues. And the Passover lamb pointed to something greater. For what innocent lamb, what innocent beast could possibly atone for sin that deserves eternal punishment? Indeed, the death of the firstborn would not be payment enough for our rebellion against God. Oh, but these ancient events happened, and God used them to point forward to the coming of Jesus. And then verse 2 says that, in in verse 2, Jesus says that the Passover is two days away, and the Son of Man will be handed over to be crucified. Jesus, you see, is the firstborn Son who will take the curse of judgment. Jesus is the Passover Lamb who sheltered his people from that judgment. And Jesus' death and resurrection are the thing that deliver his people, not just from slavery in Egypt, but deliver his people from the tyranny of the devil, even from eternal judgment. Oh, you see, when Jesus says the Passover is two days away and the Son of Man will be crucified, he was not just explaining the calendar lest they forget some important holiday. Jesus was announcing that the the great event for which he came into the world to accomplish deliverance for his people, which was only roughly sketched out in the Passover, this Passover is going to be the time. This is the appointed time when Jesus will go to the cross and give up his life for our total deliverance. We're quick to question God and say, God, where are you? Show me some love, would you? Jesus already showed us some love, folks. He, he actually gave his life to set us free. As John wrote, this is how God showed his love among us. He sent his one and only son into the world that we might live through him. Jesus willingly, knowingly, with perfect timing, went into this suffering and intentionally accomplished God's deliverance that was foreshadowed in the Passover. Jesus was not the only one concerned with timing. Which brings us to our second point. Let me read verses 3 to 5 again. Then the chief priests and the elders of the people assembled in the palace of the high priest, whose name was Caiaphas, and they plotted to arrest Jesus in some sly way and kill him, but not during the feast, they said, or there may be a riot among the people. Which brings us to our second point. No one can stop God's plan. No one can stop God's plan. You know, there are moments in uh, sporting events where we have classic confrontations. We have the, 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 the great against the great. We have power against power. We have the, the, uh, the strikeout king pitching to the home run hitter, that kind of stuff. It's the stuff that keeps sports interesting. Classic confrontation. Although we may miss it at first, what we have here is a classic confrontation. In verse 3 to 5, what is described here is the best planning and scheming of the highest ranking, most powerful officials in the land, in Israel. These are not two-bit bureaucrats uh, uh, gathering up to talk about something they don't like. This is the Sanhedrin. That's the ruling body of the land. It consisted of the chief priests, 
It consists of the scribes or the theological lawyers. They're not actually mentioned here, but that's part of the Sanhedrin. And the elders who were the representatives of the people. That august body was, would, would be comparable to us having the president and the Congress and the Supreme Court all agreed to meet together at one time to bring about something. That's a lot of power. These leaders who had opposed Jesus with increasing intensity for many, many months now meet for the express purpose of finding a way to dispose of him. Here in this, here's backroom politics at its worst. The greatest political minds, the most powerful people working together to manipulate the situation to their political ends no matter how terrible it is. And so the plan was settled. We're going to avoid any open confrontation. We don't need a riot in town. Instead, we're going to seek covert aid to arrest Jesus without arousing public attention. In fact, the, the Gospel of John tells us that they circulated the word that they were looking for informers to set the trap for Jesus. And so Jesus will be set up, he'll be arrested, and he'll be that's our great national plan. Sneakily set up Jesus, arrest him, and kill him. But one, one stipulation. This cannot go down during the Passover holiday. That's a very emotional holiday. There are thousands and thousands of people in Jerusalem, a lot of people from the north and Galilee where they're very supportive of Jesus. No, no, it's just not politically expedient. We have to do this on the sly. We have to avoid the uh, emotional time. So all the events are said motion. They all agree about everything. One stipulation, not during Passover. See where this is going? Over here are the greatest of the great, the heads of government, the highest authorities of the land, to whom every knee must bow, everyone must obey, now all agreed that Jesus must be killed, but he must not be killed during the Passover holiday. And over here is Jesus, simple man from the backwoods of Galilee with 12 followers, all unlearned, unlettered men, telling them that the Passover is in two days and I'm going to be crucified in two days. This humble man of God, his prediction of the crucifixion goes head-to-head head with all the powers of the land who govern this nation, who make all the decisions, who, who, who make up the last court of appeal for anyone. Here's Jesus, a simple one. Who's in control? Are the events about to take place driven by the successful planning of the Sanhedrin or by Jesus' prediction? two days he's going to be crucified. Are these the unfolding of God's plan or is this the people that are stopping God's plan? The question, who's in control here? Folks, this is the day that David spoke of when he wrote Psalm 2. He said the kings of the earth, the, the leaders of the people are all gathered together conspiring to throw off the chains to throw over the rule of the Lord and his anointed king, his Messiah. And it goes, David goes on to say, and the key who sits in heaven, the Lord, 
laughs at you. You've got to be kidding me. Well, you know what happened. Jesus was crucified during the Passover celebration, just as it was about to begin. So close, in fact, that they were eager to do whatever it took to get him off the cross before sunset when the Passover actually started. In other words, whatever they might have planned meant nothing in the face of God's plan. You see, the best scheming of all the best, best politicians, the most powerful people, the richest people, means nothing. You cannot stop God's plan. You cannot stop God's plan. That's what we need to be reminded of. We're not above scheming and maneuvering to manipulate God where we want to use him. But folks, it's all in vain. These men thought they were in control, but it was an illusion. They did not even slow down God's plan. Indeed, they played right into God's hands. Likewise, you may successfully destroy yourself in an attempt to take on the Lord, but you can't outmaneuver God. Your rebellion will only play into his sovereign will. Indeed, he makes even the wicked to praise him. Or perhaps rather than taking on God, maybe you already tremble at his presence. You're fearful about whether his salvation could possibly include you. The world seems so strong. Your flesh seems so weak. This morning I call you to rest yourself in the belief no one can ruin his plans save those who trust him. Jesus himself says no one will pluck them out of my hands. Can't be done. Your conscience may accuse you, saying that you're never good enough. But God is greater than your conscience. Of course you're not good enough. That's why you have to save you. That's why you have to trust me. But he is able to keep your going to the end. Oh, the world may buffet you with its wickedness, constantly trying to corrupt you, to suck you into its deadly vortex. I call you to keep running back to Jesus, clinging faith to his promises. He himself said, in the world you will have trouble. Be a good cheer. I've overcome the world. Just focus your love and trust in him. For even the wicked power of this world cannot frustrate God's plan to save. It cannot stop God's plan. You said at the beginning, timing's everything here. And so in God's perfect timing, Jesus arrives in Jerusalem and predicts that he will be crucified, that it's going to be two days from now. Thus we learn of God's gracious intention to save us. He has sent his son to be the Passover lamb who would give himself to substitute for us. And in God's perfect timing, the rulers of this world set them up in, in themselves up in opposition to God, and consequently we learn about God's sovereign power to save us. No one can thwart his plan for you. Let's pray. Oh, thank you, Lord, for these truths. Thank you that there's none like you, Lord. Thank you for your love for us, for your great plan of salvation that found a way to deliver us. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for giving of yourself 
has given you very life to endure suffering and pain and death in order to save us. And thank you, Father, that no one can stop your plan. May we not find ourselves fighting against you. May we not find ourselves spreading the doubt for what the world's doing. But may we only be trusting you, knowing that you're still in control, no matter how loud the opposition gets, no matter how clever people seem, you're still in control. And we thank you for that. Help us to never forget that. In Jesus' name.